Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Today we have a guest speaker, uh, one of my good friends. His name is Pastor John Thompson. John and his wife Abby planted Kainos Church in Atlanta. And um, planting a church is really hard, but doing it during COVID is even harder. How do you gather people when you're not supposed to gather people? I don't know, but um, John is a, is an army veteran. And one of the great things about John, the reason that we actually got connected is because we're, um, we're in these three different networks and we're the only three guys who are all in all three of these networks, the Presbyterian Church in America, Acts 29 and the New City Network. So we run into each other at conferences and things like that. Um, but John is a great guy. He loves the Lord. He's excited to talk with you. Uh, we're going to be talking about the power of a praying church. And this morning, I want you to really think about that, even as we think about praying the word. I know that as we pray the word, you've been getting those daily emails. And at times, it's just kind of easy to like ignore them, right? And then like you kind of lose your prayer momentum. But let's be inspired this morning as John comes and reminds us about the power we have in Christ when we pray. So John, come on forward. Let's give him a warm New City welcome. Can you hear me? We good? All right. Thank you, Pastor John. Uh, thank you, New City. It's really a privilege to be here uh, with you. Um, we don't know how to gather people in COVID either, so uh, we're just trying to figure it out. But God has been really kind to us as we have, um, as we've tried to be faithful, right? Um, believe it or not, God actually will reward your faithfulness. I know that seems hard to believe sometimes, right? Because life is really hard. But God does reward faithfulness. Uh, one of my mentors always talks about how um, uh, God, uh, the product of, of, of uh, success is not based on your gifts, but it's based on your faith. Uh, and that's really challenging because we live in a world that says it's about your gifting and your ability and your resources and your ingenuity and your hustle and your grit. Uh, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us is that you don't have enough hustle to get to God, so God has to come to you. The Bible teaches us that it's not about your grit and your passion or your mamba mentality. It's about God and his faithfulness who looked upon you in your mess and used that to come rescue you. That's what the Bible teaches us. But what our experience teaches us is that we have to be exceptional and rise above our circumstances rather than looking up and seeing God and his faithfulness. And so planting in COVID has been a little bit of a mind trick for us. Um, it's been crazy, just as I know it's been crazy for you trying to endure it. Uh, so yeah, uh, man, we've been praying for your church. I'm really grateful for your pastor. Really excited to be here with you to open up God's word. And to be honest with you, this whole thing about prayer is really challenging to me. Uh, you know how sometimes what God will do is he will make you uh, lean into something not really so much for other people, but so that he can do some work in you too, right? Uh, God uses us to get work done, but he uses the work to get us done. And so when I think about prayer, the Lord has been getting me done this week. Because if I'm honest with you, praying is not my natural inclination. My natural inclination is to call people I know or to look to someone that I can see and touch and uh, talk to. 
rather than going and looking to my Father who is in heaven, who holds everything in his hand. And that's what's hard, right? And so as we look at this text this morning, my prayer is that we will all be challenged, but that we will also be encouraged. We worship a good Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And often we have not because we ask not. James tells us that we have not because we ask not, and when we do ask, we ask with motives that are self-seeking rather than kingdom-seeking. And so maybe this morning God might orient our hearts. For our text this morning, we're going to look at the book of Acts. We're going to read chapter 12. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 um, to 17. It's a lot of text, but bear with me, because I believe the Lord has something to say to us. Acts chapter 12 says this, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but don't miss this. It says, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door uh, were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what, he was, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now that I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. This is God's word. And may he bless the reading of it. Would you pray with me, Lord? Um, Lord, we don't know how to pray. But your word tells us that your spirit intercedes for us. Uh, Father, um, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, God, that you would speak to us. In Exodus, it says that you would meet face to face with Moses like a man meets with his friends. God, we are not Moses, and yet we cry out to you this morning that you would meet with us in a personal way, that your spirit would be tangible to us. But all I have here is a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and without you, we won't eat. Father, if you would multiply your word, you might just be changed by it. So Lord, would you give us ears to hear you? Would, you? would you give us open hearts to receive what you might say to us? 
Would you grant us the faith to live out what you call us to? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, my family and I were in Florida. We were in Orlando, uh, and we were on vacation, and we were here to see a wedding uh, for some friends of ours. And so we drive down to Orlando. It took about six and a half hours. And about an hour after getting out of the car, my two-year-old at the time, Micah, fell in the hotel lobby bathroom and broke his arm. And so we take him to the ER, and, um, you know, you, you wait for hours. Of course, he's groaning and crying. I'm holding him. Eventually, they do the x-rays and whatnot, and they say, oh, yeah, his arm is broken. It's just a hairline fracture. He'll be fine. Uh, you can, we're going to cast him up. You get him back to Atlanta. Of course, it was a holiday weekend. It was MLK weekend, and there was no hospital or, any, or doctor's office, rather, open in Atlanta. So we just stayed in Orlando. Uh, he had a sling, and he had a little cast for his arm, which at two years old, it's kind of like a, a body cast because they can't really do much. And, and so we get back to Atlanta, and we go to the doctor, and the doctor says, yeah, the arm's broken, uh, but he's going to need surgery. Uh, I need to see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. so we can fix this thing. So in a matter of 12 hours, uh, we go from thinking that my son has a broken arm and he's a cast to uh, now we need to do surgery on him. We need to put some pins in his arm. I don't know if you have a two-year-old or if you've ever had one, but two-year-olds are not exactly the most sedentary people on the planet. If you can imagine putting uh, pins in their arms, it's kind of like, how are we going to do that, right? So we go to the hospital, uh, and I remember uh, sitting in the room in pre-op. Surgeon comes in, says a bunch of stuff I don't understand, uh, but they have my son in a gown, and they put him on a gurney or on a stretcher, and then it's time for him to go back, and so they take him. And I remember watching my little boy and just being paralyzed a little bit in the inside because that's my, that's my kid. Yeah. And they wheel him back to take him to surgery, and I just remember thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen to him? And I remember crying out to God and saying, Lord, I, I'm really depending on you to bring him back. And the Lord said, yeah, you are. You are depending on me. See, brothers and sisters, we have a problem. The problem is that we live between two worlds, you and I. We live between the world of self-reliance and radical dependence. We, we, we live between the world of thinking that because of all of our gifts and our skills and because of who we know and where we're from, because we have an education or we got a little bit of gifting, that you and I, we really believe that we are self-reliant. We really believe that we can do pretty much anything we want. And we even catechize or teach our kids this, don't we? Uh, honey, you can be anything you want to be. And there is a liberating reality that comes with that. Because if you come from a place where you've never been allowed to dream, then it is empowering to tell your child that you can be something. And yet at the same time, the subtle seduction that you and I have as adults is we do not realize some things. That though we do have some gifts... There is a gift giver who is greater than our gifts. That though you and I do have some skills and some talents and some abilities, there is one in heaven who Job says holds the life and breath of all mankind and every living creature in the palm of his hand. He is a great and glorious God. And sometimes if we're honest with each other, we want the gifts more than the gift giver. We have a problem. And that's why we have to talk about prayer. I don't really like old hymns, admittedly, but I'm learning to like them. And there is a hymn that was uh, written in the mid-1700s by a guy named Benjamin Bedamine. 
And in that hymn, he says that prayer is the breath of God inside of man returning from where it came. That prayer is the breath that God has put inside of man. And when we pray, we are returning what is God's back to, back to him. You see, brothers and sisters, prayer proves to us that we are dependent on God. Uh, 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 one pastor says that your prayer life is the litmus test for what you really believe about him. That there is something about our dependence on God that it correlates with how often and how much we pray. And it's not about volume and it's not about frequency, but it is about the pattern of prayer in your life that it indicates something. You hear people say that where you spend your money indicates where your heart is, right? Because Jesus says that. That where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Well, similarly, uh, uh, your prayer life is an indicator of what you believe about God. And so for our time this morning, what I would love to do is I would love to look at our text, and I want to break it up into three sections for us. I want us to look at the setting, the story, and then the lesson. The setting, then the story, and then our lesson. What is our setting? Well, verses 1 through 5 tell us, it says that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hand on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, he would bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but Luke is kind to tell us that earnest prayer was made on Peter's behalf by the church. So our setting is simply this, that at about that time, well, what time is he talking about? Prior to our text, the gospel has just gone to Antioch. And if you flip over to Acts 11 and you look at how that happened, it was ordinary, nameless people by whom the gospel went to Antioch. It was not professional clergy and pastors. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the disciples. It was teachers and doctors and, and uh, construction workers. It was people who, who worked for waste management. It was folks who worked in cubicles. It was ordinary people who were scattered, who took the gospel to Antioch. Antioch, you'll remember, is the birthplace of the first multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Antioch is the, the, the missionary sending, launching pad for the church and for Paul and Barnabas and all of their missionary journeys. Antioch is the first place that people were identified with Christ and called Christians. And Antioch was not started by, by paid people. It was started by people who were living out their faith as they were going along. Antioch was started by people like you. And this is a lesson for us because often we look to paid, paid clergy and pastors as the ones who are going to do the work. But that's not what God calls us to. God calls all of us, despite our occupation and our vocation, to be ambassadors for him, disciples who make disciples. And we find that in Antioch, uh, while on the one hand there's this worldwide famine happening, and, and on the one hand the gospel is spreading at Antioch, and yet, despite the racial, cultural, ethnic, and socioeconomic uh, boundaries and how they're being uh, um, overcome in Antioch, here in this part of the church, persecution is spreading. And when I look at that, I just can't help but think, man, the devil stays busy. That while all these boundaries, the vision of New City Church and so many like it, is happening in one part of the body of Christ, uh, uh, persecution is ramping up in the other. And so what we find here is not only is persecution happening, but Herod, the king, is the one who is going on this rampage. 
And if you know anything about Herod, his title was that he is the king of the Jews. And yet, despite that title, he's really afraid of the Jews. Despite his, his power, uh, uh, we find that, that Herod is actually just a puppy, uh, puppet, not a puppy, a puppet for Rome, and he's looking for some brownie points. So what he does is he starts to kill Christians. He kills James first, he arrests Peter, and then he waits till after the Passover. Why does he do that? Well, because to kill Peter on a Jewish holiday would have enraged the Jewish leaders. He isn't stupid. He's just a people pleaser. And so what he does is he arrests Peter and he holds him. And his whole motivation is that he saw that his persecution towards James pleased the people. And when he saw that it pleased them, then he arrested Peter. The reality is, is that Herod is actually afraid of Peter. Peter kind of gets a bad rap for most of us, right? He's the one who rebukes Jesus and Jesus, Jesus rebukes him. He's the one who is arrogant enough to think that he can walk on water. He's the one who takes his sword and cuts off the ear of the guard. But once Peter was restored and the Holy Spirit had taken root in his life, Peter became a bad man. Peter was healing people. He was preaching and folks were coming to faith. Uh, Peter had so much going on that people just wanted to jump in his shadow. And so here we find Peter sitting on death row in prison. That is our setting. Now let's look at our story. While he's in prison, he's sitting on death row, and the night before he's going to be executed, literally at the 11th hour, an angel appears, wakes him up, breaks the chains off his hands, and leads him out of jail. And one of the things that's interesting to me about Peter's situation is how he is able to sleep in the midst of so much chaos. I don't know about you, but if I was going to be executed tomorrow morning, I don't think I would be asleep. But what's interesting about Peter is it's almost as if Peter is not expecting, it's almost like he's expecting God to do something. He seems to be content in his circumstances. Peter seems to have a rock-solid confidence, not in his deliverance, but in his deliverer. Peter is sitting there, and he's teaching us a lesson that no matter where we are in life, no matter what our circumstances are, there is not a situation in your life in which God is not present. That might be hard for many of us to believe. I don't know you, but I can tell you my life, right? I won't tell you yours. But there are places in my life where there are pain and problems and difficulty in which it doesn't feel like God is with me. And yet Peter reminds us that it doesn't matter where you find yourself. Our God is not far off and distant, but he is close and he is near. One of the reasons why we often feel like God is so distant, brothers and sisters, is because we have become dependent on the wrong thing. You and I have become hooked on God's provision rather than His presence. And what we fail to realize is that to have God's presence is to have His greatest provision. God's presence in your life is His greatest gift to you. It isn't your career. It isn't your home. It isn't the food that you get to eat before church and after. Those are good things, and I'm glad you have them. And if you don't have them, I pray that God would give them to you. Maybe there's people in this church who are willing to help you with that. But God's provision is not greater than His presence. We have, a, we have God. We have a God who is with us. That's why every Christmas we say He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. But He is not just Emmanuel around the holiday season. He is Emmanuel in your darkest moments. 
He is Emmanuel when you don't know what to do. He is Emmanuel when you're confused. He is Emmanuel when you're lost. He's Emmanuel when you're hopeless. He's Emmanuel when you're jobless. He's Emmanuel when you're in conflict with your spouse. He's Emmanuel when all your relationships are crumbling. He is Emmanuel when you don't know how you're going to make it. God is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So here's what we find with Peter. He's half asleep. He gets woken up. He doesn't realize what's happening until after it's done. He finds himself standing on the street alone. And what does he do? What does Peter do? He says, Surely I know that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. See, Peter finds himself standing on the street alone and immediately in that moment he does something that you and I struggle to do. He worships. He says, surely I know that my God has delivered me. You see, we, hear, we see here Peter's transformation. We see here a glimpse into Peter's own dependence. The old Peter would have found a way to take credit for what God had done, but not now. Not in light of all that God has done for him. Not in light of the blessings that he has provided him. Peter just stands on the street alone, and he worships. If we keep reading in the text, we find that he's been delivered. And so what does Peter do? He goes to the only place he knows to go. He goes to where the church is gathered. And brothers and sisters, I must ask you, what does he find them doing? They're praying. Verse 5 tells us that they were praying, and they have not stopped praying since Peter was arrested. They have been petitioning God on his behalf. And the beautiful thing in this story is that God happens to answer him. So he knocks on the door, and the servant girl named Rhoda is probably the only one that gets it because she comes, and she is so overjoyed, she just starts running to tell people that he's there. It reminds me of my kids when their grandparents come. They see him pull up in the driveway, and they just start doing loops around the house so excited, they don't think to go open the door. Rhoda doesn't open the door. Instead, she runs and she tells the people, and here's what's so crazy about that. She is met with doubt. The people think she's crazy. She sees God answering her prayers, and the church can't help but disregard her and throw her away. After all, she's just a servant. They thought it was more plausible that she was seeing a ghost than God had actually answered their prayers. My God. They thought that it was more plausible that this woman was seeing a ghost. You are seeing uh, his angel, they say. It did not dawn upon them that God had actually heard them from on high and done something about what they said. So what what happens? Peter goes, he keeps knocking, and eventually they let him in. He proves he's been delivered. He tells them to spread the word, and then he leaves. So we have our story. Now let's look at our lesson. What is Luke trying to show us? What is he trying to teach us? It's very simple. What was the church doing while all of this was going on? They were praying. They were always praying. Even a lazy reading of Acts shows us that the church always prayed. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in the street. They prayed in each other's homes. They interceded for needs. They prayed and just worshiped God for who he was. The church in the New Testament shows us a church that was always praying. It shows us a church for whom prayer was not just their lifeline. It was was actually everything that they believed, right? It shows us a church who was so dependent on God that they communed with him and spent time with him. And here's what this teaches us. It teaches us that if you only pray when you're in crisis, that makes Jesus your lifeguard and not your Lord. If you only pray when you're in crisis, what it shows you is that Jesus is a puppet for you. 
He's not your portion. If you only pray when you are in crisis and you need a blessing, you are showing you, you do not realize the one from whom all blessings flow. The church prayed because they knew there was power in prayer. They prayed because they knew that there was power in a praying church. And the lesson for you and I is to realize that the power of prayer is not in the words we say, but it's in the God who hears them. You're in a series thinking about praying through the word all year. When we pray God's word, we are praying his will. There's never any doubt about whether we are praying God's heart when we pray his word. And the power in doing that is not what's coming out of our mouths. The power in doing that is God himself. That God hears you and you're praying something that is in line with his heart so you can have confidence that he's going to answer you. This is the confidence we have, John says. That if we pray, he hears us. And when he hears us, he acts. Peter's chains didn't fall off because the people were the most example, a stellar example of faith. Peter's chains didn't fall off because they said the right words. Peter's chains fell off because God used their words to declare his glory. You see, brothers and sisters, there are two things we must remember when it comes to prayer. One is that prayer keeps us mindful of who we are. It keeps us mindful of who we are. You see, as much as I want to believe that I am like Rhoda, Believing God despite everyone's craziness and doubt. I am more like the church. There are so many times in my life that I think that what, what the reason that I got somewhere is because I did it. And that's not true. And the lie of the enemy in your life is that he wants you to believe that you're really that good. That you really got it together. But the reality is, our God is the one who answers Prayer keeps us mindful of who we are. Nothing is, good, is as good about showing us the true condition of our hearts than for us to pray. The more we pray, the more we are exposed. The more we pray, the more we're confronted by our weakness. The more we pray, the more we're confronted with our lack of faith. The more we pray, the more we begin to see all the parts of our heart that have not been changed by the gospel. The more we pray, the more we declare our desperate need for God because prayer keeps us mindful of who we are but it also keeps us grounded in who God is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there are three ways to pray. You can pray to be seen, right? So when you pray, don't stand up and pray in front of everybody because they think that, they'll be, that their words will be heard because they're seen and they're visible. He tells us there's, there's people who pray to be seen, there's people who pray to be heard. And don't pray like the Gentiles who babble on who think that they will be heard for their many words. Instead, Jesus says, if you want to pray, pray to be changed. And he gives us this, this, this teaching on what it looks like to pray the disciples' prayer. And it reminds me of, uh, I've never been to Paris, but I've seen the Da Vinci Code, right? And in the Da Vinci Code, there's this, there's this thing that happens outside the Louvre where you see the pyramid that comes down, right? It's an underground um, roundabout outside the Louvre Museum, there's a pyramid that comes down, and then underneath it, there's like a small stone one, right? So if you can envision this large glass pyramid coming down from the roof, and then there's this small, small one that comes up from the ground, right? And they almost touch. And when I think about that, I think it's a great illustration for how Jesus teaches us to pray. Because what, what we do is we start here. God, these are my needs, these are my circumstances, and eventually we might get to God's glory, maybe. But Jesus says, don't pray like that. People who pray to be seen and heard pray like that. Instead, he says, when you pray, start with how, God, how great God is. Right? 
He says, start with God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then after reflecting on the beauty and majesty of God, then we get to our needs. But you know why we don't do that? It's because we don't believe what Jesus said, that if we would seek his kingdom and his righteousness, that all of those things would be added to us. Prayer keeps us mindful of who we are, but it grounds us in who God is. The more we pray, the more we encounter the grace of God. The more we pray, the more we encounter the love of God. The more we pray, the more we encounter the mercy and the encouragement and the power of God. Prayer does not put God in your debt. But it reminds us of how much our debt has been forgiven. We don't pray to earn our way. We pray because God has already done some things for us. We pray because He's faithful. Prayer does not change Him. You're not going to pray away God's will. Prayer changes us. Changes us. And the power of a praying church is that when we pray God's heart, God acts. When we pray His word, we are praying His will. And He acts. You see, my issue... Well, first, let me just say this. There's no one who shows us what prayer looks like better than Jesus. In Matthew 26, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays and he prays and he prays to the point where he starts to sweat blood. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me, not my will yours. Father, let this cup pass from me, not my will yours. And what we learn from Jesus in the Garden is what it looks like to be dependent on the Father. And my issue, your issue, our issue is we are not dependent because we are not sure if it really works. We don't believe that there is power in prayer. And we are unwilling to wait on God's timing. Brothers and sisters, God is not Siri. You can't just tap your AirPods or hold down the side of your phone and have God start replying back to you. You can't hit him up on iMessage or Instagram. It doesn't work like that. We live in an instant pot generation where something that used to take six hours now happens in six minutes. But God doesn't operate that way. God uses the marinade of your mess to make you like Jesus. So, we are not Jesus, but could you imagine if we prayed like Him? Could you imagine what our neighborhoods would look like if we as a body committed to consistent rhythms of prayer that were less about us and more about people around us? Could you imagine with me what it would look like if we as a corporate body were as fervent in season as we are out of season, where crisis was not our motivation, but Christ Himself was our motivation? If Jesus is who he says he is, then that should fuel us to live like him, and that's the whole point. The point of the text is not to drown you in shame, but it's to remind you of your Savior, who Scripture says is interceding for you and I right now, even in this moment. The point of the text is not to burden you with guilt for your lack of prayer, but it's to remind you of grace. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's by grace that we've been reconciled to God. It's by grace that we can be in right relationship with ourselves and with the Lord and with one another. It's by grace that we can boldly come into the throne room and make our requests known. It is by grace that we can petition God day after day, night after night for our daily bread. You know that the rabbis used to teach that to pray to God more than three times would burden him. It would make him tired and weary, but not so with us. We worship a God who doesn't grow tired or weary. We worship a God who doesn't sleep or slumber. He is almighty God. He is the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first, uh, and, and he's the one who is and was and is to come. 
We worship a God who uh, uh, tells the lightning where to go. We worship a God who tells the waves when to stop. We worship a God who tells the breeze where it can blow. We worship a God who tells the raindrops where to fall. God is not tired by your requests. We worship a God who, who actually likes you and wants you to talk to him. This is the God we pray to. The one who Paul says is ex- able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask, think, or imagine. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us away from self-reliance, and he is calling us toward radical dependence. It is radical because it does not make sense in a world where you have every bit of information at your fingertips. It is radical because it means that you have to die to yourself so that you can live for him. He's calling us to know him, and it's only out of our knowing him, our union with him, that we can live the life that he has called us to. Let me close with this, because I know we're short on time. I'm already in the red zone. Um, Okay, thank you. I I heard this story from uh, Dr. Crawford Lourdes. He's a pastor in Atlanta. He was telling a few folks, uh, you know how sometimes people say something in a passing comment, but it kind of just like sticks with you? Uh, So he was telling a few folks, this story, I don't know if it was made up, I don't know where it came from, but I heard it from him, so I'm going to put quotes around this around him. But um, uh, he tells a story about in the 19th century, there's this um, oratory contest where there's a young guy in his 20s and one in his 80s, and uh, basically what they would do is they came up to the front, they would stand in front of a crowd like this, and they recited the 23rd Psalm. And so the young man comes up, and man, like he... He is like the greatest gifted speaker on the planet. And so he recites the psalm, and people are just like, they're excited, they're shouting, uh, they're just amazed at how gifted and amazing this guy is, and the psalm just like comes alive to them, right? Well, after he's done, the 80-year-old man comes up, and he kind of, you know, clears his throat, and uh, he just starts to recite the scripture, And as the words of Scripture drip from his mouth, people begin falling to their knees, weeping, including the younger man who had just blown away the whole crowd. And after the contest, so you know who wins, right? The older guy wins. And after the contest, um, someone asked the younger guy, what happened? How did you lose that? I mean, bro, you were amazing, right? And he said, well, I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. You see, that is the call of God on us this morning, that we wouldn't just know about God, but that we would actually know him. That we would not just have a right theology, but also a right practice. That we would not just learn about prayer, or talk about prayer, or theologize about prayer, or sing about prayer, or talk about how much we're going to pray, but that we would actually pray. That you would clear your schedule that you would make margin in your life for God and that you would seek Him. That we would actually pursue God in dependence. God's call is not self-reliance. It's radical dependence. And so may God make us a people who don't only know the Psalms, but who also know the Shepherd. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.